on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho and Weston Williams. All right. We go inside the huddle with Daniela Candelari, who was just named Principal Conductor of Opera Theatre of St. Louis. Oliver and Maestro Candelari talk about her very recent conducting debut at the Met in O'Coin's Eurydice, about working with friend of the show, Joseph Latanzi, on Gregory Spears' Fellow Travelers, and she geeks out with Oliver on a Mozart piano concerto. Hey, way to keep it relevant to a wide audience, OC. <laughs> Plus, two-minute drill. Cancel culture kills Katarina's classic co-production. And Central City celebrates a stylish CEO. Try saying that after three gin slings. Look, if you're watching on TDO, you want to make sure you subscribe to the whole podcast. Get that full show. It's on Stitcher. It's on Spotify. You're going to click follow. Apple Podcasts, super easy smash the plus sign send us a voice memo email us your hot takes operaboxscore at gmail.com will get your voice on our show we'll get you an obs beer coaster and an obs lapel pin olympics are in the books oliver camacho are you lonely with no more olympics um i'm not gonna lie it's it's sad to like turn on the tv and to switch over to nbc and to not see um you know men with very developed buttockses <laughs> in skin tight. Uh, I think there is a channel you know? for that, Oliver. <laughs> but not where you can watch it publicly and, you know, mm. ogle uh, without being judged, you know? Yeah, but enough about curling. Weston, <laughs> how about you? Are you lonely now that the Olympics are gone? Uh, I mean, I, I still have yet to be lonely because uh, I still haven't gotten those Peacock passwords sent in from any of our, our oh. listeners, you know? I mean, you don't obviously they don't want the free OBS beer coaster and lapel pin, but they could get one if they send me their peacock password. Just you just have to do it. Send I got it right very to frustrated my DMs. by the Olympics because I don't have peacock. I just have you know NBC, terrestrial TV, and there was literally nothing I wanted to watch on there. Uh, hockey was a complete bust for me this year. USA out early, Canada out, yeah. Sweden out, Finland of all countries managed to win the men's gold. But get this, Valtteri Filppula who was on the Detroit Red Wings team, my Red Wings, in 2008, led them to the Stanley Cup in 2008. Here we are, 14 years later, winning a gold medal. To me, in opera, that just gives me so much drive to stay in this business and to play the long game if someone of that caliber in his field could go the distance. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So Daniela Candelari is having an amazing year. She started in the fall by conducting Eurydice at the Metropolitan Opera, a show which happened to be her Metropolitan Opera debut. She participated in the film of Svadba, uh, which you can watch on the Opera Philadelphia channel. Very recently, she was named the principal conductor of Opera Theater St. Louis, and very soon she'll be coming to Chicago to conduct Fire Shut Up in My Bones, and then she will spend the summer at Music Academy of the West and Opera Theater St. Louis. But to make her year even better, she is a, our Inside the Huddle guest. Let's listen to a little bit of 
her conducting the new opera showcase presentation of Hannah Lash's Beowulf from 2016. Our guest today is Maestro Daniela Candilari, who many audiences uh, in at least New York City will have heard conducting Matthew O'Coin's Eurydice. And I can't wait to start talking about Eurydice because Aaron Morley and Jakob Yosef are friends of the show. And I heard uh, Yannick Nezesagan conduct this uh, for the radio broadcast. And I can't wait till it comes on TV so I could watch it. Uh, but welcome to Opera Box Score. Thank you so much, Oliver. And please call me by my first name, Daniela. Okay, thank you. Um, so Eurydice, this was such an approachable score. I really was listening and feeling like, oh, this is great. You know, this is, it's a brand new opera, but I'm getting it. I thought the text was set so well. And I think, I thought the performance was so, were so good. Um, how did you feel about working on this show? I loved it. I was thrilled when I got asked to join uh, Yannick and the whole team and work on Eurydice. I have a little bit of history and a little bit of background working with Matthew O'Coin um, because we worked together on Crossing when it uh, came to Brooklyn Academy of Music in 2017, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I, I fell in love with his writing. Um, it was just, it was a very unique voice. Um, I love the way that he already in Crossing had these moments of minimalism, but also extremely expressive 12 tone techniques. Everything was incredibly tonal and, and yet sort of shifting. I don't know if, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. uh, but it was, nothing was expected, um, right? Every sort of new turn and every new note that came was just seemed like a little, a little droplet of, of, wisdom of, of beauty and when i got asked to join crossing uh to join sorry eurydice at the met i mean i just i think i screamed for about half an hour <laughs> was it your was it your debut with the met yes it was oh, it wow. was my debut and initially i got asked to cover um mm. and then later i got asked to have one show which which then of course the screaming continued up into the night <laughs> i think um <laughs> But I was just so happy to to be working on his music again and to be working on this piece. And one thing that I remembered when getting asked to to work on Eurydice, um, there was this final chorus in Crossing where the story has ended and it was sort of an epilogue. And the way that it was staged, the chorus comes onto the stage uh, dressed in modern day clothes. And just the, the layover of the harmonies, the beginning pitches of the chorus, Every single time I saw that in rehearsal and in performances, I was I was getting teary eyed mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, you know, this is this is what we're in for again with Eurydice. And it was truly the the sort of same emotions came back, especially with Eurydice's aria, with with father dying, with his farewell, with the monologue. 
it was just incredibly moving and i'm i'm always excited when i see matthew's piece when i see that he's doing something new um i'm always curious like oh, what, what is it gonna be he's like little, this time and he's what a little he genius he's amazing he's <laughs> yeah amazing. and they, and, they printed yeah. that article i forget it was the atlantic or something where he sort of analyzed the finale of marriage of figaro and why i don't yeah. know if you read that and why it's so touching and so yeah it's just so great to hear that somebody thinks about those things that much yeah. and maybe is using some of those rhetorical devices in his own you know music. I, th I think definitely because i think harmonically the way that uh especially when he talks about count singing uh contessa perdono mm -hmm. i think it falls into a similar harmonic structure that a lot of a lot of music that i've been touched by matthew is so there is definitely that sort of nod to the tradition and nod to um to earlier opera to to sort of where we're coming from um in his contemporary writing in his very much 21st century uh yesterday modern modern writing well chicago audiences uh will know you from your two appearances with lyric unlimited uh fellow travelers and an american dream both shows that i was very moved by and i wasn't expecting so people who listen to this show know that I'm very traditional and conservative in my taste. Like I'm like Belcanto, Mozart, Baroque, you know, if I'm feeling a little <laughs> bit spicy, some Strauss, you know, but oh. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, to go all the way to something that's contemporary, it takes me a long time usually to uh, enjoy new music because I'm, I have a very small brain and I can only enjoy things when I understand them. So if, it, mm -hmm. if it's too much uh, new, if it's too many mm -hmm. things that I can't uh, access, then I just closed out, you know. So both of these shows were both very, in the end, accessible, and the storytelling was very clear. And I remember being very moved uh, watching fellow travelers, um, maybe because Joseph Latanzi is also so good looking, you know. Um, but um, also because I thought it was just directed so sensitively, and uh, yeah, and the music was was gorgeous. So I don't know if, if either of those shows are something you want to touch upon those projects with lyric i mean those were those were both very very special project for for similar and different reasons um fellow travelers was of course my first time in chicago um and my first time at the chicago lyric that there's our puppy um first time at the chicago lyric and i i was so excited to be there and at the same time i was so nervous about my work um and, and how it was going to be received um, as you know, Fellow Travelers already had a premiere in Cincinnati, I think, in 2016. And then it came to New York to Prototype Festival in 2018. And then we did it at the Lyric. So there was already this group of singers that did the premiere and then did New York production, and which was essentially Kevin Newberry's production, but the performance here. And then they came to Chicago Lyric. And I felt like I was the new kid on the block with a couple of new sort of members of the cast and i think that always that sort of mix of having uh, a group of people who has already done stuff and then adding a couple new ones i always find that extremely interesting in seeing how things are going to come out at the end because there's clearly with a group who has a history with the piece they already know what they want they've lived through it and for us we are we're meeting them where they are and so we need to accelerate much, much faster. And then together we need to create our own story. Um, so those were all sort of unknowns to me that um, that I was just like, you know, hoping I do I do a good job. 
And obviously I've been invited back. So, you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully yeah, that so means I did do a good job. You're doing Fire Shut Up in My Bones in Chicago, yeah. which is, yeah. I mean, maybe the most talked about opera of the past, whatever, yeah. two or three years. And um, huge success at the Met and going to come to Chicago just in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like you are, at least for Chicago audiences, this conductor who does new music with a social justice slant. <laughs> That's your brand. Looks like it. <laughs> Looks like it. No, but what I wanted to say about fellow travelers, I just remember again falling in love completely with the score. And and Greg has this ability of also fusing this really early Baroque gestures into a contemporary musical style and and finding a way to fuse them and to sort of layer them um th- there was there were moments of american minimalism um poor sweet dog who just had a surgery a very yeah. a surgery we don't like to talk about as men yeah so. <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so he is not living his best life right now. <laughs> um, but there were there were moments of of American minimalism, as I mentioned, and Baroque, and also all these dance movements that I think were just so beautiful and so well represented on stage. Um, and I remember first time again that I heard um, Joseph Latanzi's Hogs Aria, mm-hmm. our very own home. It's, I mean, the orchestra is just creates this texture where the voice really has a chance to to lead the story and to narrate the story. And then the clarinet solo with it together is just so beautifully paired. Um, and of course, then every punctuation that happens sort of irregularly in double basses where the harmony switches just for a hot second. Um, it was so beautiful. And, and I feel in Greg's writing, there's this, um, and the same as I, I find in, in Matt's writing with Eurydice, there is this element of giving the listener actually a space how they want to interpret the music, which is which is very much a Renaissance and Baroque style, but it's also the American minimalism has this incredibly strong romantic element to it, where I really think both of those or all of those invite the listener to be present and to sort of find interpretation for them, which is so powerful when you're when you're participating in an opera performance. Well, I'm so glad you said that. And I really feel like you hit the nail on the head. I had no idea that fellow travelers or uh, that fellow travelers was maybe referencing American minimalism and using Baroque techniques. But maybe that's why it spoke to me, because those are two things that I understand. And I wish that before I had seen it, I would have heard you talk about it and just say, (laughs) here's what this is for. Because I think you're actually a really good teacher. And there are these videos that are online that I think Lyric Opera produced where you are just like opening up the score. It's like, okay, here's this, Mm. you know, and listen for this. And I always, as I also sing, I always wish that conductors would just be very explicit. Okay, folks, this is it. (laughs) You may not know this show, but look for this, look for this. Here's this. I feel like we're expected to bring like our, all of our intelligence, all of our musicianship to every job we do. And sometimes I just, we just need to be told, you know, here's what it is. And um, let me make it simple for you. This is what we're, we're breaking it down to, you know? Well, you know, I had a very strong, I started out as a pianist and I think a lot of my classmates who were, who were really, really incredible and exceptional pianists. And I would always look up to them for, for their piano artistry. Um, you know, a few of them would always criticize me because I was quite a nerd and I, 
loved counterpoint. I loved music theory. I love doing harmonic analysis, structural analysis. I mean, if, if the course was not even in our credit list, I would still take it because I was extremely interested in that. I wanted to Gotta get your money's worth when you're at school. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, in Austria, I didn't have to pay. So, you know, uh, that, there was that. But, um, but I always had this really strong curiosity of why certain things work and why certain things are the way that they are. And I wanted to get into composer's mind to understand why they wrote what they did. Um, and so I always had this really strong analytical mind in, in figuring out beyond what I see that is in front of me, why is it there? And, and sort of how can I, how can I make it, um, how can I put it back to, to its most granular cell? And, mm. you know, every, every piece starts with a motive. So what is the motive that we're starting with and how does that then translate and how does it tie the whole piece together? So that was always, that was always part of, of my brain and what I was really interested in. Have you ever gotten any pushback from a, a composer who maybe no. didn't even realize that they were doing something that was like refer referencing something else? And no, okay, no. no. Okay. All of the composers that I worked with have been such amazing collaborators and colleagues. Okay. Um, and I and I learn from them every single time. Every single time there's a new score in front of me and there's a conversation to be had with the composer. I sort of feel like a kid in the candy shop and I feel like I'm learning all about music from scratch. So you are definitely, it seems that you are like really voracious about knowledge. Um, do you try to instill this in your students at Music Academy of the West and Juilliard? I try, the, you know, the thing with teaching, um, I, I never really considered myself a teacher, but I think we all are. I think no matter what we think, we all teach something to someone. And um, I, my upbringing, my, my musical upbringing and my musical education was really, really strict. I studied in Austria, I started school when I was, I started playing piano when I was five with my grandmother. Then I started music school when I was six. And when I was 15, I started university in Austria, which was a very different system. Um, I grew up in Yugoslavia and we had a very strong Russian um, tradition of especially piano playing. And so that was sort of that one, right, one school. And then I went to Austria to the country where second Viennese school took place. And, mm -hmm. and that was, that had to be a quick adjustment for me. And so all of my studies, everything that I did was really quite strict. And I think that maybe I was annoying my professors a little bit because <laughs> I always wanted to do things that nobody else was doing. Um, like, for my master's recital, we had to play a concerto. And I was playing Mozart, a major concerto of 414. <gasps> oh, yeah. That's number 12 with the <laughs> beautiful is. second movement yes. where it's the, the yes. over, overture of J, uh, J.C. Bach. That exactly. is my favorite one. I cry so oh much. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> so uh, I'm so glad to hear that. But, you know, I, I mean, traditionally, you would you would play piano concerto with another pianist um, playing the orchestra part. Mm -hmm. And I thought, God, that sounds like not so much fun. So <laughs> I asked my professor, I said, I have this amazing string quartet that I've been working with. We were piano quintet at that point. Yeah. But I said, I have these amazing musicians that I'm working with and we know each other. We like each other. We play a lot can I sort of recruit them and do the Mozart piano concerto as a, quattro, a string yeah. quartet? Yeah. yeah. 
And she was like, ooh, you know, like we need to we need to check about that. And I know it got approved because I ended up doing it. Uh, but <laughs> but I feel a lot of people are also like, just like, why are you doing this? Um, so anyway, so all of this is to say that what I really enjoy in teaching and why I enjoy working with students and with young singers is that um, I love the curiosity they come up with and they come to us with. Um, and I don't think I have all the answers, but through their questions, it challenges my thinking and it challenges my interpretation. It challenges sort of my knowledge. And, and I think, again, we start creating this dialogue. And I think it's so important to give students a space to try things out. And if they need to fail, fail, you know, wrong and strong. Um, if they're going to succeed, it's going to be a collaborative effort and, and they're going to come out much more defined artists at the end of the day and at the end of their their journey wherever they may be so i really think teaching is something that teaches all of us at, at, and keeps us curious keeps us interested in in what it is we're doing and how can we further the art and sort of you know what is the youth of of tomorrow thinking about what are their concerns i i want to hear about that i want to be part of that conversation so getting back to santa barbara will be the second half of your summer and we all just learned and maybe that's even the reason why you're here that you were named the principal conductor of opera theater st louis where you'll spend the first half of your summer in this new role uh first of all congratulations uh Thank we you. we love otsl over here and um i'm just excited to see what i mean how you will help andrew and uh, i forget the artistic director's name paul jim robinson jim, jim robinson, robinson uh shape this company um are you, I mean, obviously you're excited, but I mean, your first show is going to be Carmen. Um, are, are, there, are there any other things you can tell us? I know things have to be like officially announced, so you really can't tell us anything. But. <laughs> um, so yeah, this year, thank you. First of all, I'm, I'm so thrilled and I, you know, I just, I just love the, my, my colleagues at OTSL and think the world of them. Um, so my first show this year is going to be Carmen, which is really um, sort of, a nice little serendipitous moment for for me personally again in my life and and uh, me as a conductor carmen was the first show that i ever saw and carmen is the reason i think i'm in opera i didn't know this when i was five years old and when i saw it but it was the i think is the strongest reason that drew me to the theater um i saw it in serbia in my hometown of Isad, and of course that theater serbian national theater used to do everything in serbian language um so I heard it in sung in Serbian, and I just thought it was a piece that was written yesterday by a composer who was around and who mm -hmm. maybe I'll have a chance to meet at some point <laughs> on the street and sort of like run into him and, you know, ask him how he did what he did. Um, and then my grandma, who was a very famous Carmen, actually, she uh, she told me, no, honey, you know, this is <laughs> this is not how that worked. And it's a French opera written, you know, a hundred plus years ago um so so yeah and i just i just could not believe that what she was saying was actually true i thought that she was just like trying to make up something to mm -hmm. <laughs> to completely um diverge me from from my quest of finding out who this composer is that wrote um opera in serbian and and so i think it speaks actually to the freshness of carmen as a piece i think it speaks to the incredible orchestration that no matter how much time passes is so relevant and sounds so fresh 
And it also speaks to the drama that that has the ability to capture us completely and to completely transport us on stage and into this imaginary world, essentially, and and to really participate in that world. So this year, that will be my my first production. And then I'm also doing the center stage concert with the young artists, which the program is being finalized um, about now. So I can't say much more about yeah. that. But um, you're working but, closely with Patricia Reset. Yes, the, I'm working closely with Pat Reset, Patricia Reset, and Jim Robinson as well. Jim and I are on the phone pretty much like every second day about questions that I might have. Of course, this is a new role for me. Um, mm -hmm. So I want to learn the company the best way possible. Yeah. Um, and, you know, having Jim there as, as artistic director and sort of helping me navigate through through my process it has been incredibly helpful. And of course, Andrew Jorgensen and the, everybody at OTSL, the entire staff. Um, but what I'm really excited about with um, with young artists and with the students that we're getting this year, and I think it's this sort of goes back to teaching and finding your own artistic voice, um, is just the amount of different directors and stage directors they have a chance to work with over a really, really short period of time. So we're there for two months, they get to experience four shows this year. Um, it's three different styles to our contemporary awakenings and Harvey Milk, of course, with different composers that also have a very different artistic visions and, and voices themselves. And then we do Mozart and we do Carmen. So I mean, in two months, they're getting this massive exposure to different styles to different stage directors to conductors. And then plus the center stage, which also is going to be a variety of repertoire for them. Um, and of course, singing with the St. Louis Symphony, which is one of the, the greatest American orchestras. I, I think it's such an invaluable experience for young artists where they can they can just learn so much in a, in a short period of time. Hmm. Well, I've, I wish we had more time to actually talk about Carmen and how... Mm. Uh, I, I mean, it, people are always like making fun of it's like, oh, every opera house is doing Carmen, you know, but, you know, because it is a war horse, you know, but it's still, you know, thrills. You get a, you get a good performance of it. And it, it like you said, it feels very new. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember when Denise Graves came out and was like, oh my God, I've never heard Carmen like this. And then we have Anita Rashvilashvili. It's like, oh my God, mm -hmm. I never heard it like this. And now we have Janae Bridges. <laughs> like, oh my God, I never right. heard it like that before. You know? So there's right. always a chance to be better and better. And to maybe even be more mindful of some of the issues it's dealing with, like, uh, you know, uh, domestic violence and yeah. uh, sort of stereotyping Roma culture. And um, yeah, uh, there's and and the music is just so good. I mean, just the first act, you know, creating this world that you just mm -hmm. feel like you feel like you're there, you know, with the yeah. cigarette factory and the children and Mikhail, like kind of just wandering into the opera, you know, and yeah. this, to I me mean, that the second act, I should say the second act of that opera is genius and it doesn't stop like just so, so much momentum to that incredible finale. Absolutely. It's better than Les Miserables. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. And, you know, speaking of second act, one of my, I mean, I have so many sort of, favorite moments is not really a right word because I love the whole opera, but there are sort of these golden moments that happen throughout the entire the entire piece. And um, when Don Jose finishes his aria, um, Carmen's entrance on that G, that's a no. tritone from where he finished it. No, 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 no. 
every time I think you sneaky little <laughs> piece of work. I mean, yeah. I just feel like her utilizing also the tritone is such a manipulative way of doing that. It's it's so brilliant. Yeah. And and the fight chorus in act one, it always reminds me of Carmina Burana, mm -hmm. which was, you know, written 60 years later. Um, so I think there are incredibly strong Germanic elements in, in the orchestration and in the music. And of course, we know that there's this incredible um, search for exoticism in already beginning with Carmen's first aria with Habanera. So it's such it's a fantastic score and I, I can't wait to do it. Well, those lucky audiences in St. Louis, maybe some of us from the from the podcast will try to get down there and see it. Please do. Um, but you'll be in Chicago soon, so maybe we'll have a chance to meet then. Uh, mm -hmm. Daniela Candilari, thank you so much for being on Opera Box Score. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. A little bit of sports talk before we get to the drill. So get this. Major League Baseball just did a statistical analysis of which MLB stadium has the highest alcohol sales. Ooh. Hmm. Which, just guess. Which MLB stadium has the highest alcohol sales? It's got to be. It's, I feel it's got to be somewhere in the Midwest, right? <laughs> Did you, MLB. Name me, a, name me, name me, name me a baseball team. Oh God, any baseball team that has the highest alcohol sales. A any baseball team, George. I, I'm, I'm thinking really hard of any baseball team, and they're all springing to mind. They're all the coming Sox. out. I'm saying that's okay. one. Oliver, at least name one. Oliver's wrong. The answer is the Chicago White Sox. Oh, oh I was going to say White Sox. Ashley would be so proud. So the uh, <laughs> per capita White Sox sp fans spend $46 a game on alcohol. Per person? for an uh, That's sort of average per capita for fans that are of drinking age. $46 per person for an average of 4.2 drinks per person. I guess I don't know which is more surprising. The idea that this uh, achievement has landed on White Sox fans, where that four <laughs> beers at a baseball game is $46. <laughs> Two-minute drill, that is not surprising, but it is right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know what happened in Heggyland this week. An opera discovered in a basement 80 years after its composer was murdered by the Nazis just premiered at Theater Magdeburg this month. Greta Minde, a work by Jewish composer Eugen Engel, has already played to rave reviews. We kept his papers in a trunk for years, but it was too painful for my mother to take them out, said Jan Agee, Engel's granddaughter. I always knew there was an opera score there. London's St. Pancras Railway Station will become an opera stage for this year's International Women's Day on March 8th, with train-themed micro-operas created by women composers and librettists. The experience, commissioned by the Royal Opera House, is based on story ideas from the train-spotting public. Toot, toot. <laughs> Leipzig Opera has canceled Katharina Wagner's production of Lohengrin, which was due to start rehearsals last week. The reason given by Leipzig's Intendant Ulf Schirmer for the abrupt withdrawal was, quote, technical difficulties with the stage design. Wagner said, quote, we were all very much looking forward to the completion of this new production that had already been rehearsed in Barcelona, a production rescheduled in Barcelona for 2025. 
The Bavarian State Opera has postponed the opening of Peter Grimes. The company noted that, quote, due to several corona cases in the technical and artistic departments and the associated high number of contact persons, the premiere will be postponed to March 6. The production stars friend of the show, Rachel Willis Sorensen. Cincinnati Opera has been awarded a $1.3 million grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The grant will provide funding to commission new operas celebrating the Black American experience and includes $500,000 designated to funding the continuation of Opera Fusion, colon, new works. In trade news, Ravinia has just extended Marin Alsop's contract as chief conductor through the summer of 2025. For the 2022 season, Alsop will inaugurate the Breaking Barriers Festival, a series that celebrates the diverse artists and leaders helping classical music grow. And in more Alsop news, PBS will be airing the documentary The Conductor in late March. Win, colon, win. <laughs> Canadian singer, conductor, and friend of the show, Barbara Hannigan, has just been named the first ever London Symphony Orchestra Associate Artist, an appointment for the next three years. Hannigan says she is, quote, thrilled to accept this appointment, developing and performing beautiful and fascinating programs with my colleagues at the LSO. This collaboration gives me a lot of energy and inspiration, eh? <laughs> Pamela A. Pantos will be the next president and chief executive officer for the Central City Opera, serving as the company's managing director, chief administrator, and community ambassador. And on this day, February 21st, in 1632, was the first performance of Stefano Landi's Il Sant'Alessio in Rome. In 1744, Handel's oratorio slash opera Semele premiered in London, and just five years later, his oratorio Susanna premiered. In 1836, it was the birth of composer Leo de Lieb, best known for a duet from an opera called Lachme. In 1857, Tenor Nikolai Figner was born in St. Petersburg. He created the roles of Hermann in Tchaikovsky's Pique Dame and the Count Vaudemar in Tchaikovsky's Iolanta. In 1886, it was the first performance of Modest Mussorgsky's Kovanchina. In 1874, the Italian-based baritone Vincenzo Resquilian was born, who created the roles of Bello in Fanciulli del West and uh, Pinello in Gianni's Kiki, two operas by Puccini. In 1907, A Village Romeo and Juliet by Delius was premiered in Berlin. In 1940, tenor Hein Sednik was born in Vienna. He sang in the premiere of two operas that Weston knows and loves very well, mm -hmm. uh, Schnitke's Gesualdo and Krenik's Kerhaus um St. Stefan, mm -hmm. uh, but is also on one of my favorite recordings of the abduction from Miss Raleo. And on this day, February 21st in 1961, Marilyn Horne and Joan Sutherland made their New York City debut in a concert performance of Beatrice di Tenda for the American Opera Society. And that's your two minute drill. Just a little bit of the brand new recording of Semele conducted by Leonardo Garcia Alacron, a very stylish performance, as you can hear from that commercial. The chorus and orchestra sound good. And this recording stars a personal friend, uh, Chicago local Matthew Newland as Jupiter. Matt and, Newland, uh, good friend of mine. Yep. 
Yeah. Yes. Um, so yeah, today's a good day for um, you know, handle oratorios. Um, <laughs> every day is a good day for handle oratorios, <laughs> Oliver. <laughs> Semily... Handle oratorios for every day in the calendar. Semily, <laughs> famously, I mean, it's had many accolades throughout its life in the canon. But one of its biggest accolades was making it to the finals in the OBS um, European bracket. I remember it well. Yeah. Oh, my and gosh. Championed by Matt Cummings. Gives me, yeah. gives me the shivers. Hey, look, send us a voice memo. <laughs> Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore.gmail.com on this week's two-minute drill. You're going to get an OBS beer coaster and an OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Weston, let's go back to the top of the drill rediscovered opera you yeah. are excited about this Why? i am i'm i i think this is fascinating so this is a uh uh a a new well a, a new old opera uh it was written you know in uh it was finished in the early 30s when the nazis were taking power in germany and this guy eugen engel uh was just in his spare time just composing this opera over the course of they think about 20 years wow um and it's uh, it's very it's it's very idiomatic of the time it was written. And if you if you listen to a lot of like late romantic German sort of Weimar era pieces uh, based on the script descriptions, because I haven't heard it, um, uh, it sounds uh, like it's going to be very similar to those. There's a little bits of corn gold, some Strauss, but also some uh, melodies Krennic? that were uh, not, not quite Krennic, uh, but there's also some uh, 1920s uh uh, German jazz, which is a whole genre unto itself, more which like it, Kurt Vile, maybe. Yeah, exactly. It's it's and it's a it's it's humorous. It's got other things, and it's been getting really good reviews, even independent of its story. And I think it's just also a beautiful story too. That um, you know this this opera was just shut in the trunk for years and years, and finally made it to the light of day. Because that's uh, one of the great tragedies of the Holocaust. Uh, I mean. Uh, Obviously, the first and foremost, those who were killed by the Nazis, but the the amount of culture that was lost. There's a, there's a, uh, I believe it's Decca has a whole line of of uh, recordings of uh, of composers who were murdered or or suppressed by the Nazis. Antarctica, yeah, exactly. Antarctica music, and uh, whenever I I hear one of those, I, I get excited because it's it's a part of the history of opera that was, you know, uh, almost wiped out and some was unfortunately wiped out, but there's just like this great act of defiance and even hearing it again, enjoying it again, and really like finding this missing piece of history is just so beautiful and and really genuinely moving to me. I would love and I to really see hope this it gets piece. a recording. Yeah, yeah get yeah, a recording and come to the U.S. as well. That would be exciting. Mm-hmm. I'm less excited about operas about trains coming to the U.S. And look, <laughs> I, I oh. like trains. No, seriously. Well, America really needs like trains, trains first. We don't have any. Well, we need Amtrak Joe to, to get that going first and foremost. <laughs> so this is commissioned by Royal Opera House, um, the Jenny Parker Young Artist Program there. St. Pancras, of course, is is where the Eurostar comes into London. And this this program actually is being replicated in other railway stations, including Antwerp, Brussels, and Rotterdam. Well, it's part of uh, International Women's Day, which I think is, I I think it's a very interesting two concepts to have. Because on one hand, you have International Women's Day, Empowerment of Women, you know, uh, fighting for equal rights. And then on the other hand, you have 
trains. And that's just a strange cognitive dissonance to me that I don't yeah. fully understand what well, I... I, I <laughs> so, I mean, I, I'm, I applaud these things. I think sometimes those spaces are very cool and actually acoustically very interesting. Yes. But that was a kind subject- word. Yeah, you're subjecting people to something they didn't ask for. You know, well, that's kind of the train experience. You know, you get on and someone's got a got a trumpet blaring in your ear. No, I'm assuming this is like in the on the on the platform. It's not the actual train. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and there's going to be people who are just like, "Get out of my way! I'm trying to get to my thing." And like, uh, you know, (laughs) and I don't know how much storytelling can you do, and I don't know how much time they have between. The noise of incoming and outgoing trains. I mean, I know that they can look at the schedule and figure it all out, but Maybe how much part story of the orchestration? You, you know, you, you <laughs> how much story can you actually tell? Piano, in that amount of time, you know, trumpet and uh, and a, a full Amtrak. You know, yeah. you know? I, I am confused about the acoustics. I'm not quite sure how that is going to play out. All the pieces themselves have to do with people on trains, missing passports, the passage of time. Well, it's, it's all supposedly passed. true stories that have happened to uh, ROH uh, uh, fans uh, who have gone there on the train and something has happened. And I, I think it will honestly be a lot of fun. I think that opera is one of those art forms, like Pierre Boulez said, we need to like move it out of opera houses yeah. to keep it alive and, and thriving. I think it's a it's a fun concept. Even I, if I, I don't think fully it's understand. really cool. I just don't know yeah. how it relates to International Women's Day aside from the <laughs> fact that it's going to be women composers. And, like, so. It's a, so like, dear Playboy Letters, I was on a yeah. train in Sweden the other day. Yeah. Here's what I also don't get. Okay, so over to Leipzig. Uh, Intendant Ulf Schirmer says about the Katarina Wagner production of Lohengrin says we can't do it because of, quote, technical difficulties with the stage design. So in sports, that would be like saying, well, this player is not playing because they have an undisclosed upper body injury. Like it's the most generic milk toast answer you can ever but apparently catastrophic enough to cancel it like right before rehearsals were supposed to start no 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 no. nothing is that catastrophic you don't get that close to production and suddenly realize that there's technical difficulties this stuff is figured out months and years in advance right a show in the middle of a season in february that show typically would be teched over the summer and the singers aren't there, and it's ju- this is how they do it at the Met. The shows are teched in the summer. So they wouldn't have known months ago if there were technical problems. So this is some sort of management speak for a clash of personalities. This is the an- anti-international women's uh, activism, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, there is, a, there is a Wagner family member involved, so class of, pers- of personalities is highly likely. She is Richard Wagner's... Great, great grand, grandniece or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah, something like that. So we've been skirting around this uh, the entire episode, but we're finally going to talk about it now. Uh, Jake Heggie <laughs> did not ghost us, uh, and Jake Heggie does exist. He is a real person. <laughs> um, I know that there are a few of you out there who remember the lost episode, who listened to it oh, live. Oh, the lost and, episode. And we were supposed to have Jake Heggie on today. But his schedule changed, and uh, he was unable to join us. Um, but uh, so, he does if exist. you're able to yeah. get Jake Heggie uh-huh. on the show, we will give you two free uh, a mug <laughs> uh, pins and uh, uh, beer mugs, yeah, beer 
whatever they're, and, whatever and, you're giving away. And Weston will give you uh, peacock credentials. As a... <laughs> I will buy you peacock <laughs> if you can get Jake Heggie on the show. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I think it worked out. We had a great guest, obviously. Um, but uh, Jake Heggie, if you're out there, we miss you. Hmm. Let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. It has been a great show, a really fantastic guest, and we'll give Daniela Candelaria thank you. In the closing credits, before that, good call, bad call, something great from Opera Land in the past week or something truly dreadful or perhaps in a related feel. Oliver Camacho, what's on your mind? Well, this was announced a couple weeks ago. We didn't have a chance to talk about it, but uh, the new season of Great Performances uh, broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera Essentially, the HD broadcast reformatted for TV. The schedule has come out, and the first show already happened. Boris Godunov premiered, uh, mm. I guess it was last week or two weeks ago. Uh, we will get Eurydice in March. We will get Fire Shut Up in My Bones uh, on April 1st. And they're already put stuff on the schedule that hasn't happened yet. So let's hope that there's not a new variant that uh, prevents us from seeing the Don Carlos and the new version of Hamlet by Brett Dean. Um, and uh, Ariadne F. Noxos with Lisa Davidson. That'll be really cool. And our friend of the show, Brenda Ray. Weston Williams. Uh, this is uh, kind of old news. I believe we mentioned it back when this uh, production was in development, but uh, there was uh, I thought of it again because there was a, an NPR article um, out there about it. There's a, a new production of Fidelio, um, uh, staged by New York City's Heartbeat Opera, which has been updated to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, prison industrial complex, you know, uh, the incarceration of black men specifically. And it um, it's stripped down, obviously. It's it's reworked to, to work within that context. Um, but there's uh, some there's a performance of various incarcerated people singing uh, in the chorus. Uh, the, uh, in the chorus the prisoners, of prisoners, yeah. Oh, welke lust, yeah. And it's um, and it's uh, the, the video is uh, is on the NPR thing, and I I remember we talked about this way back when they were planning it, but uh, it just came across my radar again, and I watched it. And it was really moving and really um, uh, really shines a light on our society that we need to start dealing with, and I think that's what art does best, and that's what Beethoven would have wanted. More than a hundred million people watched the Super Bowl, and. That was more like a people, month ago. Where was talking no, about that? it was two weeks ago. And more people watched the halftime show than watched the game itself. I was so wowed by the halftime show. If you haven't seen it, give yourself 50 minutes. I did some deep diving on that. That Super Bowl halftime show was designed by S. Devlin, who is one of Britain's truly legendary scenic designers. Hmm. And she knows nothing. She had admitted this in an article. She knows absolutely nothing about you know, hip hop, Compton, hip hop culture. American football, Compton, probably. <laughs> which it would, now that last one is neither here nor there, but she did her due diligence. She did site visits. She's talking to all these hip hop artists and created just a fantastic design for that show. That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. Again, if you're watching on TDO, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, get that full show. Stitcher and Spotify, you click follow. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, just hit the plus sign. Again, send us a voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get no BS beer coaster in the Pelpin. 
Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Daniela Candelari, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with Jake Heggie, if you can find him. <laughs> We're back with an all-new show next week when we game out the intersection of politics and opera. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, but no more ice skating drama. Join us. <laughs> <laughs>